Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. One of the more intriguing medical science stories of the week, Carmen Blandon Tarleton is possibly facing another face transplant. Twelve years after the attack that left her disfigured, and six years after getting a face transplant, her body's immune system is rejecting her face. Now she is faced with two possibilities. Get another face transplant, or if the tissue she currently has fails rapidly, she might have to return to the disfigurement of her original face. For more on this story, we spoke to Alex Horton. He's a reporter for the Washington Post. This is pretty common when it comes to transplanted organs. You know, if you have a transplanted kidney or a heart or lungs, there will be complications. And doctors have always warned that your organs have a new limited shelf life. You know, they're not going to last 30 or 40 years whenever you go. And skin isn't different. And in Carmen's case, the places where her new face was attached, it's starting to decay and die. And her blood vessels are closing up entirely. So it's one of those cases where her face is essentially shutting down and her immune system's attacking it for it. So it, it's really a race against time to either get a new face, a third one, or to return to her disfigured face underneath all that, which, you know, she has said she really doesn't want to do. Yeah, we've been doing organ transplants for quite some time, but this field, the face transplant, is still very, very new. About 40 patients worldwide have received face transplants, 15 in the United States. As you mentioned, you know, the, even regular transplants that we're done routinely now, kidneys, hearts, lungs, they don't last very long. And so this is all new territory. And one of Carmen's worst fears is actually going back to her old disfigured face before she got the transplant. And part of it is they have to evaluate her to see if they could even do this all over again. Right, right. And like you said, this is sort of, and, and Carmen has said this too, it's, it's uncharted territory. You know, it's only been 11 years since the first face transplant in the United States. So there's really not a whole lot of medical history for them to go look back on, on, on best practices or see if there's mistakes or what they can improve. We're really at the pioneering stage still when it comes to face transplants. So she'll meet with doctors over the next month and they'll determine what the best course of action is. It's really um, heartbreaking for her because after going through all that trauma with her estranged husband in this attack in the first place and, and finding her footing in the world, she has to kind of go back to almost square one and relearn how to have another face again. Right. As a grandmother, you know, when you have other things to focus on, you know, that, that can be really draining. Take us back to what happened to her initially with her estranged husband and how she got these injuries in the first place. In 2007, while she was in Vermont, there was a confrontation with her and her, and her estranged husband, and he attacked her with a baseball bat, and he poured lye on her face and other parts of her body, and it ended up burning 80% of her and also essentially blinding her as well. She was completely blind in one eye, and the other one was, was legally blind. He was sent to prison, and he died recently from medical complications there. But that has left her with a, a lifetime of, of ailments and challenges. She had a synthetic cornea put in a few years ago, and that too has failed. So, you know, she has sort of retrograded in another way, which is her vision. And, you know, that's how she was able to gain uh, or regain some of her independence by going to the laundromat and going to the store, playing her instruments. And that too has been taken away from her. 
Yeah, I think she's applied for a guide dog now, and we'll, you know we'll see how that that ends up working out. But yeah, it's just a very interesting look. And, and famously, you know, we all remember the the videos and the pictures of when it happened when she first got the face transplant, and you know it was a medical miracle at that time. And and it's just tough that this is happening to her all over again. I, I think they say that they're going to evaluate her for about a month before they determine if she can get a new face transplant. Right, right, and it's it's a reminder that pain and trauma endures. She has been very open about what the attack did to her and and the challenges she's had to overcome. But, you know, when the news cameras go away and the reporters go out the door, you know, she still has to live her life full of these challenges. So it's just another reminder that even though she's improved her life greatly since the attack, you know, every day is is a, a difficult challenge for her. Yeah. And improving her life that much, she definitely attributes it to that face transplant. She doesn't want to go back. So yeah, we'll keep uh, following on the story and see what develops Alex Horton, reporter for The Washington Post, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Oscar. Checking in on the immigration front, you've heard all about the crisis at the border and the influx of migrant families seeking asylum. But what happens after they're released into the U.S. and they're waiting for their next step in the process? Oftentimes they're exhausted, sick, out of money, and it's up to local border communities to pick up the tab for helping them out. Alan Gomez, he's an immigration reporter for USA Today joins us to talk about how local governments are spending millions of dollars to care for migrants after they're released by Border Patrol. So basically, as we've seen over the past year or so, this massive influx of mostly Central American migrants who have been coming over, we hear about what happens when they get to the border. We hear about sort of the conditions that they're in in Border Patrol facilities along the border. But after that, that next phase then kind of disappears. And what was happening throughout that whole period when we were getting these record numbers of people coming over was that Border Patrol was realizing that they were at capacity, couldn't hold all of them in their facility. So they were releasing mostly families. So think mothers with children, fathers with children, in some cases, just whole family units. And at first, they were just started dumping them in cities, leaving them on street corners, leaving them at bus stations with little to no advance warning to local officials. So a lot of these local governments along the border started seeing this, started asking Border Patrol what was going on, realizing that this was going to be an ongoing thing, and then deciding that they had to do something on their own to try to help these people and at least get them some basic level of care. And to clarify, these are migrants that requested asylum, went through the initial process, and then were released into the general population, basically awaiting their next step. Exactly. Yeah. A lot of them were those who requested asylum. Others are seeking other kinds of relief, but the basic idea is the same. They were initially detained. They were processed by Border Patrol. And a determination was made at some point that they could be released into the United States to await their next hearing in immigration court, basically. Local governments have spent at least $7 million over the past year to care for thousands of these undocumented migrants after being released by the federal government. One of the first examples you start off with in your article is San Antonio, they received more than 31,000 migrants released by Border Patrol. For folks who don't live near the border, San Antonio is not on the border. They're more than 150 miles away. So this is a city that's just not used to processing or handling a bunch of migrants who have just crossed that southern border. And they just were dropped off in the middle of the night off of a Border Patrol bus. And so local officials had no idea what to do. They didn't even know the right department to call within Border Patrol because they just don't deal with them very often. So the city started taking a lot of different steps. They started setting up a processing center for them to come in, provide their information to help get them 
at least food for a day or two, get them shelter for a day or two. And the most important part is helping them make phone calls to relatives that they have in the United States to coordinate transportation from San Antonio onto where they were eventually going to go. One of the other cities that had some pretty crazy numbers was Deming, New Mexico. The migrants that were dumped there were numbered 7,500. And this is a community with a population of 14,000. So basically half their population in migrants were dumped in that city. It was a sort of chain reaction where you had El Paso, Texas, which is the westernmost city in Texas. I mean, they were just getting absolutely overwhelmed by people who were being dropped off in El Paso. So as El Paso would reach capacity, Border Patrol would pretty much just go to the next city up. So they started going to Las Cruces, New Mexico. Then they moved over to Deming, New Mexico. And by the end of this peak period in Albuquerque, New Mexico, which is 200 miles from the border, they started seeing some migrants getting dropped off there. And yeah, Deming, like you said, it's popular population of 14,000, they got more than half of that in the number of migrants that were dumped off there. And they had to end up shelling out at least $500,000 to care for them and to take care of those migrants. City leaders from both political parties are very frustrated with the administration for what they think of as something that the federal government should be handling. They don't think they should be taking the brunt of this. Congress has set aside $30 million to reimburse border communities as part of the spending bill that passed last year. But still, in some cases, it just takes forever to get any type of money back. I think McAllen, Texas mobilized a bunch of money to help people. I think it took them about a year to get any type of money back. This was going back to the migrant crisis that happened in 2014. So the process is very slow, and these community leaders, city leaders, don't know if they will get reimbursed or anything. Yeah, it was really interesting. I'll speak with a couple of these border officials who pointed to 2014. And and that migrant crisis, to remind everybody, was unaccompanied minors. That's when we first saw just this really big rush of just minors who were coming over by themselves. And during that period, as you mentioned, McAllen, Texas, they spent about $600,000 in taking care of them. And it wasn't one year. It took, I think it was four years before they got their first check from the federal government. And that was $175,000, so less than 30% of what they paid out. So this time around, as these border communities started seeing these huge numbers of families that were being dropped off. I spoke to a couple officials who just kind of gave a heads up to their city leaders. Hey, look, this is what happened in McAllen. This is what happened in these other cities. It took that long and they only got a percentage of what they paid. So we have to be fully prepared if we're going to jump in and help these folks to swallow a lot of that money. And with the slight chance that maybe sometime down the road, we're going to get some money back. Alan Gomez, immigration reporter for USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Finally for the week, the movies made it seem so simple. Get a strand of hair and you can figure out who it belongs to through DNA. Well, that isn't exactly true, unless that hair had a root on it. And in most cases, they don't. But that's changing now thanks to a scientist who developed a new technique that makes it possible to recover and sequence DNA from hair without the root. Heather Murphy, reporter for The New York Times, joins us for the latest advancement in DNA. I think that there is an assumption. I think that those of us who watch different crime shows, we kind of think, ah, yeah, you know, along with the blood and the saliva, they can just grab a hair and they can figure out if it's the suspect. But actually... That's not true. If you spend much time in court proceedings, you'll find that often the forensic scientists have to get up there and kind of apologize for they found a couple hairs at the crime scene, but that doesn't mean they can identify the suspect. And this also kind of comes up when 
people who are really into family history find some old hairbrush that their grandmother left behind and think, oh, cool, I can get grandma onto 23andMe or I can get her onto these other genealogy sites. I'm just going to take this old hair and find out more about her family. But you can't unless the hair has a root. And even then, if it's like a recent hair, and that's what he has changed, is that that has been quite difficult. But now he has figured out a way to make that possible. And as we've seen with the rise of genetic genealogy and how that new technique has really helped solve a lot of cold cases and obviously the most famous one capturing the Golden State Killer, this is now is receiving a lot of attention, so much so that Dr. Green is getting sent packages of hair from serial killers, victims, in the hopes that he can help identify who these people are. Sometimes a hair is all they have, you know, especially when you're thinking about old cases in which they gathered evidence, maybe even before anyone was really thinking about DNA. So a lot of these mysterious cold cases that carry on, and some of these cases also of unidentified bodies, those bodies were collected, those remains were collected, the evidence was collected from the scene, even before people were really thinking about DNA. But maybe sometimes in all those materials, there is a hair. Whereas until now, they had to kind of think, ah, there's not much we can do with that. With his method, and sometimes, in some cases, he is able to use this approach that he cultivated because he was focused on ancient DNA, ancient fossils, ancient bones, and sometimes old animal hair, and apply that method and that which he has kind of fine-tuned specifically to get what he needs out of it so it can be compatible with genealogy site and then hands it over to a genetic genealogist who can then in some cases actually put a name to that hair. Right now, Dr. Green is working with law enforcement officials on certain cases. There's a lot of secrecy involved with what he does, obviously, because these are ongoing investigations. But one in particular that his technique helped out in was known as the Bear Brook Murders. And they were able to finally find out who the victims were in this. And this happened a long time ago. So tell us a little bit about that one. It's interesting because the Bear Brook Murders, which is this case that has had all these ripple effects for genetic identification. That was actually sort of one of the first crossover cases that was used by Barbara Ray Venter, who went on to crack the Golden State Killer case, which then launched the expansion of this technique. So it's pretty interesting that that one case not only really spawned genetic genealogy as an approach to solving crimes, but also really spawned this other thing, which was that, so the situation was this, Dr. Barbara Venter, who's this former patent attorney who is interested in genealogy, was laying there because she was recovering from a back surgery and she was kind of bored. And she had gotten connected through this strange course of events to this case in New Hampshire, where there were a woman and three girls unidentified bodies, and they'd been found in barrels in a state park. And in order to start her process of identifying them, she needed to get some DNA out of there. But they had been there and there had been rain and years of rain and sun and everything else. And so the DNA was degraded even in their bones. In the end, they were able to successfully get DNA out of one of the girls' livers. But in the other cases, 
they really had no way to get any DNA out. So she was kind of frustrated because she couldn't help with this case if she couldn't get any DNA out. And that's when she read this article in which Dr. Ed Green was mentioned. This was another weird case of a casket that was dug up from the backyard of these people in San Francisco. And she saw something about hair and she thought, okay, hmm, he was able to get some <laughs> DNA out of hair in that weird old case of this hair that had been there in this little tiny casket with this little girl. Maybe he can help me. So she called him and that's what really got this momentum going was that she asked him if he would be willing to consider whether he could apply what he'd been doing towards this case of the women in the barrels. And pretty soon after, authorities in New Hampshire sent him hair from that woman and the girls, and he got to work trying to figure out how to apply this technique towards their hair. It's just so fascinating how DNA technologies have expanded and changed over the years, and we're able to do so much more now with less who knows? Maybe we will get to <laughs> catch up to where TV and movies put us and, you know, we can find any little piece and extract the DNA from there. But that's kind of where things are moving. Things are changing. We're learning more things about it. And from my understanding, in order to identify a person, you need something called nuclear DNA, which is different from other sorts of DNA that you can get off of things from hair and, and whatnot. What do we know about how this technique, how this process works? To be clear, he is not the first ever scientist and the first ever person focused on ancient DNA to get this golden nuclear DNA out of hair. Really, what he did, his innovation is kind of a two-parter in innovation. I mean, as he's kind of put it to me, people in the forensic world, they don't exactly read ancient DNA papers. Why would they? So these are kind of two separate worlds. So the first part of his innovation is really just essentially that he was bridging the gap between those two worlds. By Barbara Raventer calling him up and asking him if he could help, he was applying this knowledge that he had had a very large role in helping facilitate, but he was one of many people who kind of been advancing this field of ancient DNA. So the first part of his innovation is that he was applying this method to getting that golden nuclear DNA that he'd been using for old bones and animal hair towards hair from a crime scene. So that was fundamentally the first part of that innovation. And the second part of that innovation is then, you know, the way he put it to me is that it's one thing to get nuclear DNA from a Neanderthal or an extinct but you're not trying to find that cheetah's relatives. You're not trying to find yeah. that Neanderthal's relatives. You're not trying to figure out which Neanderthal was that, which cheetah is that. So when you're actually trying to not just learn about this Neanderthal or this cheetah, but you're actually trying to kind of place them within the context of their family, their descendants, so you can st to identify them then you need a very specific way of approaching it. And so that was kind of the second part of his innovation. And that's why it took him about a year to fine-tune the process between Dr. Ray Venter's request and when he did this. There's about 200,000 to 250,000 cold cases in the U.S. And with these new techniques to extract this DNA, it could become another tool for law enforcement to use and really solve a lot of cases. Heather Murphy, reporter at the New York Times covering advances in DNA. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me.
That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow the Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of the Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.